Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to a table talk. This is a podcast of the beloved community, and it is great to be with everybody on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon. Today is September 13th, 2023, and my name is Erwin Lopez, and I am the co-chair of the beloved community, which works alongside the Bishop's Anti-Racist Task Force. And today, we're going to be talking with Michelle Blanco, because she has a fascinating story that we have to understand, we have to study so that we can prevent some of this from happening in our denomination, in our churches, and in our world. Because we currently find ourselves in a cultural war where there's anti-woke movement, and then there's this woke movement. There's this open up your mind movement, and there's this, no, we need to be more conservative. And, and so she has a story where she finds herself in the middle. Um, and she has just a very fascinating, interesting story about her work at Crew, and I just can't wait for you to listen to it, but I think we need to learn from her. So let me tell you a little bit more about Michelle. She's a trained missionary. She's been trained for over a decade, and she served overseas and, the, and here locally, and she's been trained by Crew, so you know she went through some real intense training for a long period of time. And also has a Bachelor's of Arts in Music from UCF, and she's currently pursuing her Master's of Divinity from Candler. Um, and she loves to bridge theology, culture, and race. And you can tell why from her experience. She's from Puerto Rico. Um, she's Boricua, which is cool. <laughs> and she's from Florida. And she's serving in our United Methodist Church here in the Orlando area, Spring of Life United Methodist Church. She's her discipleship director, I believe. I'm sorry if I messed that up. I'm sorry. Um, and she also loves movies. And she has two children. Um, but we can't wait to for you to hear from her. Michelle Blanco, thank you so much for being with us today. And I'd love to hear your story. Just tell me about, you know, what happened at Crew, how you started a Crew, and and I um, tell the people your story. Yeah, well, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I started um, my journey with Crew started in back in 1996. Uh, so I'm dating myself when I graduated from high school. Um, I uh, grew up in a in a very pretty evangelical home. I was actually used Pentecostal, went to a Spanish speaking congregation. Um, and when I got to college, I really had a heart to um, evangelize um, and to reach people uh, for Christ. And so um, I was a commuter student at UCF and the best um, meeting time that worked for me was with what at the time was Campus Crusade for Christ um, and got involved and kind of went all in in the ministry. Um, and so I uh, went to mission trips. Um, I went to China. I went to um, uh, just all the different conferences that were offered um, with uh, what is now Crew. Um, and it, in 2000, I decided to be a full-time missionary um, with, well, actually I was on an internship um, and went to Spain um, that year. Uh, while I was in Spain, I experienced this kind of cultural revelation about myself. Um, I realized that during college, despite my um, Spanish speaking background, I had really tried to hide away um, or maybe even was ashamed of my Hispanic heritage, um, at least parts of it. Um, I It really kind of shed light on the fact that um, when I was at UCF um, with Crew, um, there was all these resources, this, this wealth of of theological resources that were available um, to my white counterparts um, there. And I started in almost internalizing the thought that God didn't really care about um, people like me, 
um, people like my family and the community that I came from. Um, and when I went to Spain, I got to work under uh, this wonderful couple who worked in Hispanic campus ministry um, in uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico. Um, and it was at that time and with my language skills and my culture skills that were kind of innate uh, because of uh, my experience navigating two cultures that I realized that um, that wealth, uh, that financial wealth didn't necessarily equal wealth in spirit and wealth in um, experiences and um, and health even in in a, in how a person grows up and, and relates to the world and relates to Christianity and so and Jesus. And so um, so that was really key for me when I came back. Um, I took some time and decided to be go to full-time ministry with crew um, in 2003. And I uh, was really excited. Uh, first, uh, was assigned to go back to Spain, but then really decided that I wanted to minister back to my own community, um, and came on staff with a ministry called Destino. Um, was working, you know, partially at UCF, partially um, also training here at the cruise headquarters that are based here in Orlando, um, and was working on coaching students and staff all around the country. Um, now, to be crew staff, you have to raise your own 100% of your own support or finances, payroll, healthcare, et cetera. Um, this, the amount that you have to raise monthly and yearly is significant. Um, and so I was raising support for about three and a half years and never got fully to my support goal. Um, and so eventually I had to leave. Um, but during that time that I was there, I started becoming... Um, somebody like a go-to person for cultural awareness, cultural knowledge. Um, I started learning actually under the African-American ministry um, of crew at the time um, that they have since separated from crew called the impact movement. Um, and, uh, and it was just so enlightening for me and enriching for me to be able to um, cross paths and learn from deeply other um, Christian traditions um, culturally and, and racially who were um, more justice-minded. And so um, that was just really key to my formation and development. Um, but I eventually had to leave staff because I could not raise enough support. Um, in the meanwhile, I ended up getting a job at a local theme park as a performer, entertainer, um, which was fun, but it was also a Christian organization from which I also suffered a um, significant amount of spiritual abuse. Um, and, uh, and eventually had to leave as I started was got married and started my family, um, and ended up back at crew doing finance, um, and was a crew at 10 years doing finance. So that I left in 2021. Um, during that time, I very quickly got pulled back into the, even though I was in finance in a paid role, um, I didn't have to raise my own support anymore. I had to, um, I quickly got called back into ministry type work and activities, though, which my uh, director in the finance department was uh, very much into having paid staff more integrated into ministry, more direct ministry type work. Um, so didn't believe uh, a ton in the separation of the administrative to um, to face to face in person um, ministry. And so 
So I was, you know, definitely uh, blessed to do that. Uh, got called into a lot of conversations, cultural conversations, panels, et cetera, because there was kind of this move toward uh, really discovering as a from primarily white organization, what was our um, history with race and racism, um, really confronting that. There was just like a big move in that direction that really ramped up in 2015 um, and uh, ended up getting kind of called into this like leadership academy type thing we could call the um a learning initiative a senior leadership institute um where i met a lot of other um bipoc people of color that were also kind of the focus again was that leadership was an issue right there was not enough bipoc leaders and so we got called in as kind of like the forefront of people who might lead the ministry um at the time and um, at the same time, unrelated to what I was doing, there was this other ministry called the Lenses Institute that was starting in Cruz Athletic Ministry called Athletes in Action. And they were starting to kind of pick up as well. And eventually in 2017, we got uh, several of us got invited to uh, a training for lenses, uh, for lenses facilitators. Um, because Lenses was going to expand past the athletes ministry to all of Purdue. Now, Purdue, in case you don't know, it's like a, uh, here in the United States, there's like 8,000 staff. It's, you know, one of the largest ministries of its kind. Um, and, and yeah, so the idea was to be able to take all, um, more staff through this kind of intense training that was five days, um, very much, uh, an emotional um, uh, time together. It was a time of honest conversations, a time that was kind of increasingly uh, vulnerable and continued kind of seeking ways. I mean, they, they would use kind of all kinds of different ways that we would use games or we would use um, museum visits, site visits, um, speakers, uh, just really hard, honest conversations about privilege. Um, we eventually started separating the groups because of just kind of things that we realized as people who are in the dominant culture or white culture are uh, learning things that have already been known to BIPOC, there was there would be some kind of, there would be definitely some tensions that would kind of build up there that probably weren't healthy for BIPOC. So we started kind of learning as we go what was and what was learning a good healthy learning that was not at the cost of our BIPOC staff. Um, and so um, so we started separating a bit there, but then um, kind of with the political events of 2016, 2017, and kind of the increasing tensions there, by 2019, we started seeing some significant pushback, especially from um, kind of very conservative YouTubers and bloggers um, that were saying that crew was going away from its mission to reach people that um, that lenses taught critical race theory um, that um, other areas of crew were also doing the same especially because in crew you have to go through um, take a certain amount of seminary credits um, to kind of receive a, a like a certificate of ministry that you kind of take as you do ministry um, and so that curriculum was changing. And so we started going into kind of a, uh, people started saying, 
that we were, um, yeah, just falling away from the mission. There was a group of people that wrote a 169 page document. I'm referenced in that document as well, although not by name, um, about why um, crew is going in the wrong direction um, in training staff about um, basically the church's history, the US history that has led us to continue to be segregated that keeps people um, oppressed, um, especially ethnic minorities, even those that are Christians. Um, yeah, and how the church has participated uh, or been indifferent um, to, to the marginalization and the oppression and suffering that has happened um, in our country. Um, and so, so we are, all of our con website content and content started going into an audit process with a new national director. Um, and it continued to um, kind of progress. It turned from an audit to a reimagining, right? These were things that we used to um, reframe <laughs> certain, certain concepts and certain things. Um, and um, using people that had never been to an institute um, that could speak that would speak into its content. We had to take all of our uh, books, you know, anything from uh, Ibram X. Kendi to just like any any kind of resources that were anti-racist resources had to be removed. Um, and then it went from like let's pause lenses and then to let's stop lenses. So at this point, uh, I was now part of the um, executive leadership team for lenses. Um, and we made a unanimous decision that rather than having uh, crew have control of that um, of that process, that we would take control of the process and actually uh, close lenses down. So this is a, a pretty common process, especially in pri primarily white organizations, not just crew, but lots of other places where something that in a BIPOC person starts, like an initiative, uh, will eventually like get taken over because they don't like kind of the direction that it's going in. Um, and so also, by the way, very much dominated by donors calling in <laughs> um, and saying that they don't like the direction that crew's going. Um, so this has happened many times in crews, uh, a BIPOC person will start something and then leadership, which is primarily male and white will, um, come in and say we we're not comfortable with with how this is being led or headed so we're going to assign this other person um, to lead it instead and we're going to change x y and z about it <clears throat> so rather than have that happen we made a very public decision on twitter and lots of places to say we are closing this down we have felt that the environment has not been one that is um that has been an environment of intimidation um, and oppression were just kind of very clear about what what we were going through. And we decided to close it down. We we got ended up getting comments from people like Lisa Sharon Harper or Kristen DeMay or Jamar Tisby, all of whom uh, talk significantly about the history of the church and oppression um, within within the within the larger um, dominant culture. Um, and we we left. And so a big hullabaloo started after that. Um, probably most of us on the executive team have left uh, the organization. And yeah, it's just very unfortunate um, that 
even though this whole initiative around race and justice was started by a previous leader, um, everything got blamed pretty much on on the on the BIPOC that that responded to that call of former leadership. Um, so there was no solidarity, no one saying, hey, that's not true. Um, you're mischaracterizing them. You are um, basically lying um, about this particular group. Um, and none of that was called out. So, um, so that's a bit about my story. Um, yeah. No. I appreciate everything you've shared and, you know, listening to your story and reading your paper as well. I got to know Adrian Pay. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been reading his book, The Minority Experience. And yeah. I'm seeing a lot of similarities between what you experienced, and what he experienced. And mm -hmm. <clears throat> I haven't gotten to the end of the book, but I'm guessing the end is going to sound similar. Um, but I first want to ask you about your experience as a college student, partly because I'm a college student. I'm not a college student. I lead a college ministry. Oh my gosh. You wish. I, I wish I was a college student. Yeah. <laughs> and I work with college students and crew is probably the biggest ministry on campus. Mm -hmm. And I worry about some of the students who go to not just that ministry, but most ministries have the same theology as crew in yes. UCF. It's a historically white, male-dominated, conservative theology. And, right. and I remember, this is kind of a funny story, that one time crew was doing a project and there was like 80 people on campus. And I remember them walking around and I remember seeing the minorities. There was a small group of minority students there, mainly white students. And I remember them make them making eye contact with me. And I just remember feeling as though I wish I could talk to them. You know, I mm. wish I could warn them. Um, but I don't know how. And I, I feel like that wasn't my place. And so can we go back okay. to when you were a college student? Mm -hmm. What was it um, that you experienced? And, you know, for me, looking back, when I see myself, why is it that I put myself in a situa situation that's all white spaces, right? I I decided to go here and I really enjoyed it, right? And so what is it about us? And what was, what was happening to you when you were a college student? Just can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I started college when I was 17. And at the time, almost, you know, one of the things I like to focus on now as a parent is um, raising anti-racist children and making kids more socially conscious and racially conscious about what's going on around them. But I was raised with none of that, you know? And so, although I grew up in a Spanish speaking congregation, I knew definitely knew that I was different, but the most important thing is that you're a Christian, right? <laughs> and so um, your culture essentially, I mean, it matters, but not that much. I mean, that was what I, grew up with. I no longer believe that <laughs> it was um, at all. But um, but I just wanted to tell other people about Christ. And so um, I was, you know, not thinking heavily. I mean, I remember when people would meet me and those people that knew me at the time would say I was very shy. And I was, 
um, in general, much shyer than I am at, you know, my age right now. Um, but even more so because I was facing two cultural differences, which is one denominational um, and also cultural, ethnically, ethnically, ethnically different. Um, and so when you go into a new culture, there is these unwritten rules that are that are kind of around about what you talk about, what you know about, um, even knowledge of like music and bands and foods and traditions and all of those things that um, that you don't really think about when you're going into a new environment and you're like, and I don't even know if I could, I could definitely not uh, articulate what I was feeling or observing at the time, especially at 17. Um, and so, yeah, so I didn't, I didn't consider it a huge deal. I mean, especially at the time, there was definitely not a place where I could express my faith and be a Latina at the same time. And so, um, so yeah, that's a bit of what I was thinking and it's not, not uncommon even today. Did anybody talk to you? Did anybody warn you? Did... No. Um, I did like from my youth pastor um, at the time, I remember showing him a brochure and he's like, oh, like they put the people of color here. I was like, that was like the main thing. Um, but he too, you know, went to a Christian university that was primarily white. Like, it's not like we have, you know, but at the time I was probably more like in denial. Like these people, I was more focused on, there's always when you go into a new culture, like a honeymoon phase uh, where you see only the positive in that culture and the negative in your own. Um, and um, in IDI speak, that's polarization reversal. <laughs> and so you um, you think of cultures as us versus them. And then for many um, ethnic minorities uh, and many BIPOC, it's um, my culture is inferior because my culture is poor. There's more crime or drugs or whatever in my culture, at least what you think there is. Um, because that's all you see represented on TV or that's how people talk about your culture. Um, and so you believe those things when you go in um, and you don't really question them. Do you feel as though it is our role to warn people about this? If so, how, you know? Mm-hmm. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, I probably definitely would start a conversation um, in in some ways, like um, in almost any case you, that you have to address or warn people, there's usually trust involved, rightly so, right? And so um, if somebody doesn't know you, they don't know whether you have their best interests in mind or not, um, especially if they're coming from a place where they warn other people, hey, you're going to hell, <laughs> Um, and, um, they may not see the fact that they're not earning trust saying that either. <laughs> um, but, uh, but usually there's, there's some trust involved in, you know, sometimes that's for some people that's more easily, um, like that, that topic is more easily, easily broached than others because some people, depending on their assimilation level, um, are, have either rejected or or maybe in a place of questioning 
They might be like, do I belong here? And I would say that's probably true for a majority of Hispanic Latino students um, on the college campus. They're probably was, were not as easily, <laughs> not to make myself look like, um, what's the word, gullible. Um, <laughs> so like, I, I really, really want, wanted to be a, in a part of a Christian organization. And, you know, would I have been warned? Would I have even taken it? I'm not sure. But I would also say it's not bad to try, especially if you can start a conversation that quickly builds trust with that person. I see, you know, so many students who are in the situation that you were in, and I feel for them. I I, I worry mm -hmm. for them. Yep. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about this. I love this. I kind of want to remind the people about noticing patterns. And you talked about this pattern and that we should be aware of these patterns. You said first, it started with an auditing process. Then they renamed that to a reimagining. And then they started removing anti-racist resources. And this is exactly what's happening in our government. This is what's happening in our world. And then they said, stop. Let's Florida especially. Yeah, Florida especially, right? Look at this. And then initiatives led by people of color get overtaken by um, white people. Um, mm -hmm. And so can we just talk a little bit about that? Because that's exactly what's happening in the world, in the government. And I'm worried that that may happen in the United Methodist Church. And mm -hmm. I want everybody to notice the patterns. Um, but we are making great efforts. Um so I don't know if you want to share anything specifically on that. Maybe what is next? Or what would a ministry that is not closed man mindly like this, what would that, I don't know, you want to expand on, on this? Yeah, um, I would say there were some things early on that I was a little worried about, even in back in 2016, 2017, or even 2015. Um, I was like, is anybody... Like, I know that people are trying to help align our staff in the way they think about race. And there, some of them are resistant, some are not. But is anybody talking to our donors and really focusing on their development, spiritual development in this area? Um, because, I mean, while we may not believe this, we do treat donors many times, major donors, as if they don't have anything, any spiritual growth. Um, to learn from those of us that are nowhere near their level of wealth. Um, and that is, could not be further from the truth according to Jesus. <laughs> and so, um, and so, yeah, where, where is the money coming from um, is w one of the main questions. And what are ways that we can um, n plan like concurrently, right? You want to be able to train our, our clergy and our lay people to, to adapt well and to be aware of power dynamics when they're in their churches and um, be aware of who is, uh, can't speak English and who might feel out of place because they're a darker skin tone. 
um, and to really name those things and be very just competent around around differences and how to handle them in ways that are honoring um, to those differences and not uh, marginalizing. Um, and so, but, um, but, but yeah, concurrently, we need to talk about what it means for, for people to kind of control with their money, um, the outcomes of our churches, which so much rides on, you know, and what are different models we can use and, um, you know, and I know that UMC right now is going through a split that is a very costly one. <laughs> um, and and, it, and it, it's good for sure that you can see that they're willing willing to take those losses um, because, I mean, that's just, you know, one a point in the positive column, <laughs> we'll say, um, because that's usually where, as they say, the buck stops here. <laughs> That's not technically what that, I don't think what that phrase means, but you can kind of use it, the buck, the financial buck, that's where it stops, um, is when donors, you know, are no, uh, no longer willing to support a ministry that talks about race and racism and gets involved in politics and all of that, which is ironic because that was, you know, a lot of the start, the very early starts of the Methodist church were, were about social, social issues. Um, so yeah, I would say no, that's yeah, great. The, that's great. Mm -hmm. I love your, um, donor development piece. Mm -hmm. And they have yeah. to grow too. That was always like, right? they, have to grow too. <laughs> they do, they do. You have to invest. I mean, they, a lot of times they're very busy. Um, and they're like, you know, I just want, well, there's a couple of, <laughs> there's a couple of, of ways the right ones that really give for the right reasons like it's not my money it's god's money and i'm gonna give because it's it's not you know spiritually speaking and you know ethically speaking it's not mine um and then there's um those who may give for tax purposes right um but don't want to put their money in things that are politically going to hurt them either um because many justice efforts do politically hurt them um, if they are making uh, just extraordinary amounts of wealth, right? Any it's kind of racial initiatives and um, yeah, just a lot of, you know, supporting public schools and public education, um, higher taxes, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, so there's that. And then there's those that are like, I just, you know, I want, I, I don't want my money going to places that are not about the gospel, meaning like evangelism. Um, if it's anything outside of that, then it's not really any different than supporting any other benevolence uh, organization. You know, I know we're doing the podcast and I know there's clergy and laity listening to to this. And I just wonder if we can briefly discuss what this means for us as Christians. The idea that historically evangelism has been colonialism. It has been the stripping of people's culture, whether they do it 
systematically or they do it violently. That's what the history of Christianity has been. And so mm -hmm. as a leader in the church, you know, how do you navigate that? You know, how do you continue to profess Christ and, and even do this hard work of anti-racism, mm -hmm. knowing what you know? Yeah, um, I get asked that a lot, especially, you know, when I tell my story um, in the continuous, because I didn't even share all of it about, you know, church spiritual abuse, you know, because I also went to church, you know, throughout all these years and experienced a ton of corruption um, and um, harassment, um, sexual harassment included. Um, and so, you know, some people are like, why are you still here? And I was like, because I'm recognizing that the world in which Jesus lived and the world that we live now are vastly different. <laughs> and so um, culturally and and all else, like I love Jesus um, and brown, darker skinned Jesus, you know, and, and, and all his words. Um, in scripture, I may have issues with some of them too, <laughs> but um, but overall, I don't want to let whiteness and colonialism colonize the Bible because that's basically what's happening. Um, on, on top of colonizing cultures, it's colonizing the people that are in those scriptures that we read. Um, and so... I, I would like at least a shot at following the non-colonized people in scripture um, and see what they have to say about my life and about the church's life. Um, yeah, and be able to to live into that um, and not not be someone who colonizes, but to somebody that worries about um, the well-being and health spiritually, emotionally, physically, of all creation. So. <clears throat> okay, well, I appreciate you answering that question. Um, I'm sure it's not like an easy question to, to answer in terms of you know, the emotional connection that you have to it. Um, one of the things I was thinking, too, is we should title this podcast From Crew to the UMC. What do you think about that? <laughs> That that's a possibility too. Yeah, you know, I think that's interesting. Um, uh, for sure. I mean, no place is perfect, right? No, you're right. No place is perfect. But I, I want to talk a little bit of, a little bit about um this transition. So okay, you were a crew and that mm -hmm. happened, and now you're in the United mm -hmm. Methodist Church. And you're mm -hmm. full-time at a local church here, Spring of Life, which, by the way, if anybody in Spring of Life is listening to this, a big shout-out to you guys. You guys are really the only church that has been reaching out in the district who has been wanting to engage in some of this work, and you're very passionate about it. And so shout-out to you for leading that. You know, Shout-out to Pastor Mike, too. He's so generous. I'm so thankful for your church. So anyways... Mm -hmm. Thanks. Tell us what you're doing in the United Methodist Church. What kind of work? How is this impacting your ministry? What's it like being a United Methodist? Give me some on the ground mm -hmm. um, type stuff. Yeah, um, I'm still learning, you know, because I come from um, first Pentecostal, then kind of Baptist, Presbyterian -y 
kind of way and then the non-denominational non which probably dominated most of it and so the the polity and you know structure of the umc is like i'm just like learning it you know all new and so there's definitely things that i appreciate about especially the accountability part of of the umc structure um with how you know who pastors report to you i love i've probably never been a in a ministry that is so conscious about how they take care of their kids um, uh, as far as safety and safe sanctuaries and all that stuff um, that is consistently talked about in my classrooms um, when it comes to ministry ideas and, and people kind of shooting things back and forth and it's like, you know, is that safe sanctuary um, compliant? You know, like there's just constantly um, kind of talking about um, what what the requirements are to protect kids, um, and given where the evangelical world world is right now with that, um, I would say that's that's a major, um, you know, that's something something that I definitely appreciate. Um, I'm the director of discipleship at Spring of Life, um, so currently is you know it's a it's still kind of a smaller church or newer church compared to other Methodist churches. And it's a very, in a, still in a very growing area of Lake Nona. So, Definitely yeah. still, especially after COVID, adjusting to life post-COVID and reestablishing small groups and, and that kind of thing, which is, you know, part of my job, you know, I would say, you know, I only work there like a, a few hours a week because, um, because I'm a full-time uh, MDiv student at Candler. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I just um, uh, like I wish I would have had a little bit more time at the church to kind of um, really gain more knowledge of that time, but the time is is limited right now. And so, um, so yeah, just kind of love being a part of people's lives. Um, sorry that my text is is beeping right now. Um, let me see if I can mute that. Okay. Um, so what else about um I really, really appreciate my time at Candler, um, which is a United Methodist, uh, primarily United Methodist seminary. Um there's but there's lots of different diversity, like there's a you know, an episcopal track and a, a Roman Catholic track and uh, Baptist track, um, and there's definitely a lot of influence um, as well that we get to experience from AME students and professors. Um, so that has been super enriching for me, um, super affirming of, um, of where I currently theologically am and um and where my heart is when it comes to justice um i'm currently thinking about concentrating on chaplaincy and then also justice peace and conflict transformation um because that's very near and dear to my heart and so i really am appreciative of the opportunity to be able to exercise my gifts fully um if not necessarily because of time constraints in the united methodist church like in my local church but also at, at candler itself um, that's, that is a whole story too, because I, a dear friend of mine, um, the reason I'm at Candler is because she became a dean at Candler the same year, this, the year, yeah, the same year I became a member of the UMC. 
Um, and she let me know that there was scholarships. She's like, have you considered getting your MDiv? And I'm like, not really, because I can't afford it. <laughs> and then my mom, do I really have time? Um, can I, yeah, can I afford not having a full-time job, etc.? And uh, and yeah, so she she let me know and, and was able to um, give a recommendation and encourage me to apply. And that's why I'm at Candler, uh, UMC's seminary and go to a UMC church, um, which happened to coincide uh, in a nice little coincidence. Happy coincidence. Well, we're glad you're here. Stick with it. Mm -hmm. Thanks. <laughs> we're trying to build more support for uh, people of color and so so important we're trying as you know as you know i firmly believe that actually most places are not doing enough um to to help people of color not feel isolated in ministry um to help them feel encouraged to help them feel like they're not crazy when they experience certain things in their churches or in their leadership and the general structure and systems that they have to navigate in the United Methodist Church. Uh, just so many things because most systems are not by us and for us. And so we have to um, learn to, to live in, in separate worlds. I agree a hundred percent. I know. I wish I was given a, some kind of support group or some kind of small mm -hmm. community, but oh. yeah. I have just a couple more questions for you, Michelle. Sure. Um, one of them is about your IDI training. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about IDI? Tell me, educate me on IDI. Um, sure. Maybe give me um, an example. IDI, Go ahead. Sure. Um, IDI stands for the Cultural Deve uh, uh, Intercultural Development Inventory, um, and it is a 50-question test um, that determines whether someone is in, um, in a particular place on a continuum. It is a developmental inventory, so it's not typological like MBTI or Myers-Briggs um, or StrengthsFinders or, or you know any of the Berkman, any of those kind of standard tests that you might take at your job um, that type you into a certain personality, right? Um, this is a developmental inventory. If you've ever heard of the EQI, it's more akin to like, hey, this is a place where you can grow. Um, and and that's what the IDI does, but for intercultural competence. So, um, I mean, I can give you kind of an example of myself, right? I'm most people, um, there's five um, parts of the continuum, um, denial, polarization, minimization, acceptance, and adaptation. And so denial and polarization are um, mindsets that are more uh, monocultural. Minimization, the middle one is a transitionary um, uh, part of the continuum. And then the other two mindsets are acceptance and adaptation, which are more adaptive um, to other cultures. And so uh, most people are in this middle one um, in minimization. And, um, and and regardless of whether you are BIPOC or dominant culture, white, uh, from the mainly European side, um, it's still about 60 to 65%. <laughs> and so this is very enlightening for me 
as um as a latina that uh that i fell into that middle category <laughs> so and i'm like i'm here i was already in lenses you know i was i was working for for justice you know a justice ministry talking about these things etc and i fall like in the middle it was like a sense of shame <laughs> that came about which usually that's some one of the things that the IDI might be known for is um is the fact that you know you want to be further along in your ability to bridge differences and so it really helps me to think about it sometimes in a way that's not that doesn't put ethnicity or race at the center but maybe um in my ability to bridge across differences in um in abilities for example if someone um has a disability that i'm not familiar with um and i have to learn now about um like what is it that can make a person who experiences disability um or who has a disability uh how to make them feel seen and included and um and not like that they're marginalized, but honored, you know, as I use that word, honored and um, and completely a part of the larger whole and an important part of the larger whole. Um, so it, you know, it helps in that sense. Um, and of course it helps in just your standard, like somebody comes in, they may come from a country you're completely not familiar with. Um, and, and so if they may come from Thailand and, um, they may have traditions and cultural uh, behaviors that you have never experienced before. And how do you help um, to, um, first of all, usually the first thing is actually self-knowledge. <laughs> so like, what, what are your own, what are your own isms that you're not aware of? Like, what are you, what are places where you step into a place and you have things, behaviors that, um, other people may not be used to because you are you are the different one, and so that's that's usually the first step. But eventually, it's to get to the acceptance and adaptation part of how to help that other person um, feel included and be themselves. And it's usually uh, and how to help them adapt and you adapt, <laughs> like mutual adaptation. Um, and so it's been key for me. Um, especially as I interact with people who um, like one of the more um, difficult ones, I would say sometimes, especially when you're dealing with majority culture, let's say you're in a cis white male environment, <laughs> right? And, and they are in polarization defense. There's polarization defense and polarization um, reversal, right? Polarization defense is I, my culture is better than your culture. Um, is basically the short version of that. Uh, us versus them mindset. When you have a cis white male that's in polarization defense um, and they have power, then you will experience that, that sense of, okay, uh, I'm not, he doesn't see me as an equal in more ways than one, not just in my place, but also in how I want to do ministry in life or my job. Um, and uh, in conversations with other people, like let's say they don't have power, it helps me to say, I don't think this person, I don't have the trust built with this person to engage this conversation in a way that is going to honor myself and my body 
Um, and therefore I can choose to not engage. If I am not at a place where I can engage in a way that is patient, right? Or, um, or is able to really do any good um, in, in that person's life or my own. Um, so, so that's just a brief summary. How long is the training? Um, it is, so there's different, there's different options. And so like, let's say you wanted to do the IDI, um, you would take the test. It's like 20 minutes to take the test and it would be, you have to debrief it with an IDI qualified administrator or so you can debrief it with me. And that takes an hour. Now, if you wanted to do like a group thing, um, we also assess the group's score, um, and create goals for the group. Um, so, but back to the, just the one-on-one -on -one with you and I, um, it would be, so then afterward, I would give you like a, a form that you would try to do in about three months time that helps you, uh, helps you increase your score and increase your cultural, intercultural competence. Um, so, so that that part of it is just based on your availability, your willingness to to want to engage. Um, so, but then there's the church part or nonprofit, whatever organization you're part of. That you know, if I have like a group of ten, each one would take the test. I would debrief with each of them, but I would also go over their group score and how they, as a group will um, come off or how, how they will be felt, um, what their impact will be. If, like if their impact as a whole is minimization, then the church as a whole will be more minimization is more like, let's focus on what we have in common, forget our differences. Um, in which case, a lot of people with differences will still feel marginalized in that sense because um, they will just need to learn that to bring their common ground things and not their differences. So does that make sense? So yeah. if you want to do like a full day, you know, I I did like a a half day to kind of introduce culture as a concept and how we define it, et cetera, et cetera, do some activities that get people kind of start thinking about it and then do IDIs and then do a kind of a final, like here's your group score, here's things you can do, we can do a full day thing where we actually come up with a strategic plan for the church or for the group. And um, with very, with IDI is very action oriented. Somebody even told me the other day that I had done their IDI with them. She said, do you have a book I can read to help continue to grow? I was like, remember it's action oriented. So just take that form that I gave you. <laughs> and for real, for real, it's actually a really good plan um, that it gives you um, so that you can start digging into where you're, you know, where you really need to grow most. Um, and so um, putting plans down on paper and actually doing them is key. Um, and that will help people in your church or people in your group in UCF feel more that you're taking more actions um, and not so uncomfortable with their differences. And you believe everybody should take this? Every church person, every just person, right? You're a big believer in this. I do because of how it's impacted me for sure. So I'm very evangelist. I'm very evangelistic as a person.
Um, I was good at sales for things I believe in. <laughs> so, cool, cool. Um, help with that. Mm -hmm. Crew is great with their marketing and their evangelism. They are. Mm -hmm. They are. So we aligned there for a little bit. Well, thank you so much for your time. I feel like this was very informative. Um, I've always I describe it as fascinating, interesting, and I hope that whoever is listening to this can learn and study from what she went through and can also implement some of this in their ministry. You can implement the IDI training. You can reach out to Michelle. We'll share her contact information with you. And mm -hmm. just check out the ministry of Spring of Life United Methodist Church. That's where she's at. And mm -hmm. Michelle, thank you so much for your time. I don't know if you want to close with anything. I want to encourage our clergy brothers and sisters and everybody in between and anything you want to say. Yeah, I would just encourage people to continue to... Um, I mean, Ted Lasso wasn't the first person to say this, so I just don't want to give credit to Ted. Um, I've been, I've actually been saying this for a while because it's an IDI phrase too, um, that stay curious, not judgmental. And so, um, or judgment and curiosity can't occupy the same space at the same time. And so um, if you are, if you come across a difference and you don't know what to do with it, you have to kind of consciously tell yourself, what is it about that difference? You know, and so stay curious is my is my mantra. Um, in fact, I do have a blog called Curious Theology. Um, it's uh, michelleblanco.substack.com. Um, and you can kind of see what I'm writing there. A lot of it is school assignments that, you know, I can publish, but yeah.